0: Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now.
1: Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away.
3: Give me some tips for not having jet lag. Sure.
4: (laughs) Easy. I can talk to that. I highly recommend definitely to avoid jet lag. You should take hardcore prescription drugs (laughs) so you can sleep. It is the only way. I don't believe in jet lag. It's a state of mind anyway. I believe getting lots of sunlight. That's about it. That's all I got. Sunlight. Sunlight. Why sunlight. Like arrive, go for a walk. Oh, okay. okay. Like the sunlight, apparently something to do with that and it helps okay. your jet lag. Now I was reading this like you can get these like anti jet lag glasses now. Really? That like project light at particular times like into your eyes to like trick your face into thinking it's in the right time zone.
3: Did not know that. Yeah. They sound that sounds weirdly yeah. uh what's the word? Artificial. Uh, it's all weird. Yeah. I got nothing. Okay. Okay. So drugs and sunlight. Yeah. that's all I got. Okay. Uh, how's how's that in England I reckon drugs are probably accessible but sunlight
4: yeah it's an issue
3: yeah 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 it's a problem but flying out to Australia yeah you'll be fine you'll be fine at one way exactly okay good times Hello and welcome to the the Industry Podcast, Episode sixty eight. For those of you new to the show, my name is Simon Kane, and this is the podcast where I interview the most influential people from the worlds of stand up comedy, radio, TV, and today, the Fringe Circuit. Simon Abrahams is the Creative Director and CEO at the Melbourne Fringe. I got him on the podcast to talk about how the Fringe operates, how it helps non-Australian residents get visas to perform, the way the decline in print media has impacted promotions in Australia, and how to register a show from another country, and so much more. If you've ever wondered what it would be like or how it would be possible to take your show to the other side of the world and perform it this is a podcast for you it's largely comedy focused as always but we do also talk broadly about other genres of performance that take place at the festival so it should have a little bit of something for everyone as always please do remember to subscribe and join the facebook group to get updates when new guests have signed up to get your chance to ask some questions but without any more delays this is simon abrahams
4: so i am simon abrahams and i'm the creative director and ceo at melbourne Fringe. Melbourne Fringe, if you don't know, is one of Australia's largest festivals. We have something like 6,000 artists in about 400 shows in 196 venues over 18 days, playing to about 350,000 people. And I've been there for just over a year. And before I was at Fringe, I've kind of done lots of weird and and wonderful things. I worked in children's theatre, actually, for a long time, kind of at the pointy, experimental end of of things. We did one-two tour of the uk we did lift which is the london international festival of, of theater with a, a season at the national actually but yeah toured a lot sort of nationally and internationally creating experimental kind of installation work for children so i'm sort of at the opposite end of the scale now in a lot of ways i've done um, i also ran a center for ideas which is a very fun thing where every day <laughs> every single day we had panel discussions essentially about kind of anything in the world so you know I've kind of come from a theatre background to yeah the kind of world of literary programming and kind of books writing and ideas and now I've kind of landed in a multi-art form festival across you know theatre dance music visual art comedy kids work books and books writing and ideas yeah. um kind of a, a little bit of something for everybody
3: okay and, and in terms of your role at the fringe so you said you're CEO and creative uh, director was it yeah that's your that's your job title yeah so so a lot of fringe festivals over here you book through a sort of third party uh, in between company, should we say yeah. so for example laughing horse like do a lot I know they do a lot of festivals over in Australia do they do Melbourne fr- no? no okay ignore that no but they, they do so they do a lot of fringe festivals over here yeah. where uh, you book with them they give you a venue and then you register centrally with the festival mm. itself mm. I mean do you do all the, the bookings yourself is it because it sounds like you're creating so cur- curating the fr- fringe yourself
4: good question so Melbourne fringe is an open access festival which means like Edinburgh like Brighton any artist can participate so we have three streams to the program we have the independent program where anyone can come directly to us which is what they tend to do sometimes they need a venue so we might help find them a venue but sometimes they come to us with a venue already on board and then we you know kind of support their work we also program venues ourselves so we have artists that come to us and we program or curate them into into our venues in what we call the Festival Hub, which is like the kind of, I guess, heart beating heart of Melbourne Fringe. And then we have a, a commissioned program. So we actually commission public artwork that kind of goes out and about in the city. So, you know, we have, yeah kind of commission program a curated program and the open access program and my job really i guess is to sit kind of i guess at the the top of all of that and then i I have an amazing staff of people that kind of work across those programs and we run a huge kind of artist development program as well for kind of emerging artists in particular
3: so i assume you can be in more than one of those so if you so if i so if anyone applied for the indie program yeah if you wanted to book them for one of your venues it's not like one or the other or is it allowed
4: it probably it probably would be one or the other not by definition or by a rule, but just sort of how it would tend to work in terms of our festival is two and a half weeks. So if you're booked in for a season somewhere else, you probably wouldn't have time to come and do a season with us in, in the hub. So you'd yeah, you tend to kind of choose one or the other, I guess.
3: So the seasons overlap between all three of those?
4: Yeah, it's all at the same time. Oh, okay. So yeah.
3: so it's not like, so for example, with Edinburgh, you could do your own show at two o'clock, say, yeah. and then be on a variety bill for say the Pleasants at five. Or yeah. is, does it work like that? Or yeah. It could work like oh, that. Okay, yeah,
4: fine. yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I understand. Yeah, so conceptually, it could you could do something, but we, we tend to be, uh, unlike Edinburgh, I guess we're not nearly as big. We have 400 shows. Edinburgh has, I don't know, 2,000 or something. Right. Yeah, billions. Yeah, yeah. Like- <laughs> yeah. Um, a trillion. So, um, I guess we, most of our programming is, is at night. So, okay. you know, there wouldn't necessarily be huge capacity to, you know, kind of be in multiple venues across town, but it's possible if you really wanted to push it.
3: <laughs> okay. I say bring it on. Yeah, yeah. Well, push yourself push yourself Yeah. so if most of your programming happens at night does that mean that so for example if we compared it to Edinburgh which is always a mistake because it's so different to yeah. all of Anything them else, yeah yeah. but if we were to Edinburgh you can do pretty much I think it's from like 11 o'clock in the morning to 11 o'clock the next morning you yeah. know what I mean yeah. so in terms of yours is it that people don't take time off to come to it like they would do like they'd do a holiday to Edinburgh and so they'd watch a day worth of shows or is it a case of most of the audience of people coming from work maybe or
4: yeah most most, most people come from work so okay. yeah most of our shows start at kind of six o'clock or, or quarter past six right. and then go through till about midnight i guess and then on the weekends we might do, do daytime shows but not a huge number of people would do a midweek show
3: okay but they could okay yeah bring it on so over that two and a half weeks most of the shows are happening thursday friday saturday sunday no in the we'll evenings. run oh, uh, okay. every every night right
4: yeah but just at night basically
3: yeah, yeah. and by de- uh, well i don't say by definition but by extrapolation would it would it be fair to say that much like most people over here in England you, you know Most people don't like Going out on a Monday For example Because it's the first night Of the week Would you say there's Sort of a, a bell curve Of audience participation And going out Or do you think Because it's a festival vibe
4: Yeah it really depends On the really depends on the work itself I think A Monday is, is a quiet night I guess Tuesday we often have Half price tickets So Tuesday tends to have A surge But you know Thursday, Friday, Saturday Are definitely our biggest But you know We see people across Every night of the week It really depends on The work, the venue The particular audience We run across the the school holidays in September so you know we'll have family events you know during the day or in the early evening so yeah it really depends on the show and its particular audience
3: yeah totally and and in terms of shows do they prefer finished shows or work in progress or split shows between three or four performers for example what's the kind of uh, feel for that
4: kind of everything I guess across you know we have 400 shows so we do have a you know a massive mix we get a lot of people a lot of comedians for example who will try out new material in Melbourne we have a pretty Pretty extraordinary audience at Melbourne Fringe who are massive risk-takers compared to, you know, some of our sister festivals in Australia who tend to have, I guess, more commercial acts sometimes and audiences tend to flock to something that they know, Melbourne Fringe audiences are really happy to try out something new. So we often will get artists try out new material or sort of see, you know, work up, test something new, and then they might take it round on a tour for the, you know, 12 months after that. So we often get an extraordinary number of kind of premieres at our festival.
3: Okay, that's cool. And like you said, you call them your sister festivals. Yeah. So I assume there's no rivalry as such, because you're not really crossing over with each other.
4: Yeah. No, there's no real rivalry between the festivals from our perspective effective because Melbourne Fringe is actually at the other end of the year to a lot of the big festivals that some of the UK artists might know. So we're in September, September and October, and a number of those artists might come into, tour, say, the Perth Fringe or the Adelaide Fringe or the Melbourne International Comedy Festival, which are sort of in February, March, April. So, you know, we're kind of great friends and we go and see all their work and they come and see ours and we kind of work in partnership, I guess, because we really don't see each other as competitors.
3: Okay. Do you know why you're positioned or... or did you, did you have a reason for being positioned in September?
4: We're 35 years old. I think partly it's just how things have always been. Okay. And the Melbourne International Comedy Festival yeah. is in April. Okay. So I guess we deliberately put ourselves six months apart to, yeah. you know, because we share often a lot of work or share some audiences, so we don't want to compete with each other. So, you know, I guess they, yeah, they take the first half of the year and the Melbourne International Festivals at a similar time to us and the Sydney Fringe is at a similar time to us mm. and there's almost kind of, you know, two ends. And, and yeah, we we take the second half.
3: So, yeah. so the Melbourne International Comedy Festival, if you were to have a rival, would probably be that one, but only because it's the same location and more comedy focused than your one.
4: Yeah, I guess so. We're quite different in a sense.
3: Yeah, we and they we're sort of
4: they're they're a lot bigger than us. They're a lot more commercial than us, and they're just comedy, whereas we're across kind of every art form. So yeah, we're we're good friends with them. Yeah, I suppose if we were on at the same time, perhaps we'd see each other as as competitors. But you know, they're kind of great, big big brother, big sister to us.
3: Yeah. Okay, in terms of so. if we discount the English festival circuit for now how do you fit in so say an Australian artist who was doing the festival circuit over there how would you see your festival fitting in with the others so like what so for example a lot of acts over here work to Edinburgh if that makes sense so they'll go around and build a show and then do it there and then maybe tour it or whatever where does yours fit in for an act that maybe is just Australia centric and then maybe one that wants to come over as well yeah
4: Um, well I guess in some ways the you know the Australian equivalent To Edinburgh is Adelaide You know Adelaide Fringe Is the second largest In the world After Edinburgh And Perth Fringe Is the third largest In the world After Adelaide So we have two Of the three largest Festivals in the world And there's definitely I guess a a circuit Particularly for those two Because they're They're back to back Or they're on at the same time And they have a similar vibe In a sense In some ways similar To Edinburgh Of you know They they are quite commercial They're tent based festivals They're predominantly outdoors So they do very well For circus For comedy They I guess Are as much of about the kind of temporary bars as they are about the work that's in them they're about the whole experience so a lot of artists will work towards that there are huge audiences there and, and massive marketing budgets and you can do very well you know of course it's it's really difficult as well Melbourne Fringe is a lot smaller it's a lot friendlier it's a lot edgier it's a lot riskier so we often find artists will see Melbourne Fringe as a time to experiment they'll often test a new show with us them and then take it to probably Perth followed by Adelaide but likewise we we get artists from interstate that come to us sort of the the other way around, but you know, we will often get artists try something new in Melbourne, take it the next year on the circuit, say Perth, Adelaide, Melbourne Comedy Festival, and then you know, take it off to say Brighton Fringe and Edinburgh Fringe. And then that's sort of the twelve months are gone.
3: Yeah, you you've just come from the Brighton Fringe. I have. Yeah. I mean what's your relationship there? Are you do you you use that for a scouting ground or is that
4: Yeah, I went to Brighton Fringe for the first time this time. Okay. Um partly I just wanted to see it and understand it and you know, we're sort of a similar size in a sense. So it was in interesting for me to get a sense of how that might work and there's a number of Australians that perform there so I wanted to kind of yeah just understand the context a bit better and definitely to try and you know yeah scout work and see what people are talking about and who's interesting and mm. yeah that that was it was great actually
3: and they uh, they have a free fringe model there do you have a they free do. fringe model at yours
4: we don't no yeah. now so all of our work is ticketed or it's completely free programming but if it's free programming there's sort of no expectation of you know payment as the free fringe model often kind of you know does work so no we're I guess a probably more traditional ticketed model the kind of free French model doesn't really exist in Australia actually yeah even in, in Adelaide and, and Perth it, it doesn't really exist
3: so if you were to go over there and do a free show most likely no one would actually pay at the end if you asked
4: people wouldn't understand it the culture doesn't yeah the okay. culture doesn't, e- doesn't exist okay. I think people would be like this was a free show oh, okay. you know so yeah the the culture is different people would expect to buy a ticket beforehand
3: so would they be upset if they were asked at the end to to contribute towards a show or would it be I
4: think it's just about context. Okay. I think if people understood kind of how it worked, you know, but certainly the the festivals, you know, I guess I include myself in this, the festivals don't like to encourage it in particular, you know, because it ultimately can devalue the work of the artists. It, you know, we like to encourage people to pre-book. There's sort of lots of reasons I guess to try and capture as much ticketing data which is useful for marketing purposes. So, you know, definitely we're trying to push people into ticket sales rather than put a coin in a bucket if we can if we can so
3: yeah yeah. I I read an article that said you saw 39% increase on ticket sales this year to last year is that right
4: uh that's right yeah it was the the year before to the year before that yeah Yeah, yeah. between 2014 and 2015 yeah we saw a 25% growth in artists participating which led to a 39% increase in box office
3: so in the correlation of that was that more audience were coming because there were more shows or was that still percentage-wise audiences audience numbers for shows staying roughly the same You know, because if there's
4: more shows, yeah, more artists were, more audiences were coming to more shows. So both of those things are true. So we had more shows in the festival by about twenty five percent. There was a concern that the audience, you know, wouldn't increase to to go with it, which is certainly what we've seen in some other festivals. And thankfully, that was not the case. So you know, we, we saw more people coming because there were more more shows, but also more the percentage of tickets sold for each show was also higher. So may those numbers continue.
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah. How, how did you make that happen? I'm interest. What was the the pull factor that kept that building? It's an interesting
4: question. We've kind of asked ourselves that a lot <laughs> in terms of what drew such a significant increase in the number of artists wanting to participate. I mean, I do think you know there's been a, a consistency of strategy across the organisation that has really helped people to kind of understand you know what it is that that we do um, and why that can be a part of that and the benefits of that for them. I think you know we've we've probably just done a better job of kind of artist recruitment and artist call out and explaining people the benefits of fringe and and that there's real audiences for them and i think over time we're then seeing audiences come back time and time and time again we've had some really strong programming some brilliant artists you know a couple of big headline acts that can often really see a flow on effect to a number of other you know smaller artists or companies as well
3: and in terms of getting more audience numbers through was that you putting more money into marketing or was it just word of mouth what what built that up as well
4: a combination of things i mean obviously over the last say three years you know we've really seen the right in in social media in a a commercial sense so we've really you know our followers have dramatically increased we've really learned how to use that you know we've built up our kind of public presence as well with our kind of free public artwork that just builds a bit of um, momentum we've got a a really fab publicist who does a really great job you know so I think just a combination of things all kind of adding up.
3: So uh, in terms of your your learnings from social media is that key to getting like to getting your show out over there like what's what are the main methods that people use to discover a new show
4: yeah how do people find a new show or find a good show is sort of that's, you know, yeah, that's, that's the the, thing, the yeah. sort of the the if i could bottle that i'd sell it for for a lot of money <laughs> i mean you know obviously in in a place like melbourne um you know our audiences want risky great amazing brilliant work and something really edgy and interesting will earn a reputation, you know, very quickly within days. I mean, there's audiences just desperately trying to find out. And Twitter is definitely a huge part of that. Um, you know, the buzz goes out very quickly. People will kind of talk about shows they've seen and just, you know, the Melbourne Fringe hashtag. And you can follow that pretty quickly and get a pretty good sense of it. Um you know the kind of critical reviews and critical engagement is you know relatively dire which i think is sort of true around the world from what i can see we're seeing more and more um column inches cut um you know and obviously some of it's moving online um but there's then such an enormous amount of it it's incredibly difficult to know who to trust and you know that's just the nature of the modern you know contemporary media um but you know, for for us in terms of, you know, finding a work, it's definitely that kind of Twitter buzz and word of mouth and people being in the club mm-hmm. and turning up and just kind of going, You've got to see this show, this one's amazing and then as shows start to sell out, people want those ones. Yeah. You know, I always recommend Better to sell out a small venue than um, you know have the same number in a massive venue. That sold out sign will do wonders for your for your box office.
3: Yeah, my my first Edinburgh, uh, I did a room that had I think it was fifteen or sixteen capacity. Perfect. And yeah, and well, I was not you know in anyone so well, i'm still not but but the thing is is that like the first day it filled and then we to turn away people and, yeah. and that kept building every day because people would tell their friends and like, say we can't get in and it's only a 16 in theater but for some reason they hadn't clocked onto that and, and so we had like queues on the stairs and at one point we were getting in trouble because it was a bit of a fire hazard because it was like too many people and we were like we haven't flied. this is weird so yeah i can understand the the but i but also it's kind of uh when i spoke to mick perrin about this mick perrin's a a touring agent over here he uh, he put it down quite succinctly we said um is the venue bigger than your ego (laughs) try and place it that way yeah yeah and i suppose if so for example if someone wanted to come over and they wanted to try and pick a venue would you and you said you sort of help out with that for the indie people how does that work for someone who doesn't live there so is it a case of a skype chat an email correspondence what's what kind of support can you give someone that can't just pop over and have a look at rooms?
4: Yeah, we do a lot to help artists find spaces. I mean, we know we know most of them. And, you know, we really try and match artists... I guess, on a curatorial basis of where their work fits best, you know, because we're across every art form. So some of our venues, you know, really have reputation for contemporary dance or, you know, for live music or for experimental theatre or for straight-down-the-line theatre or for stand-up comedy or, you know, anything in between for live art work. So, you know, we really try and get a sense of, of you know, if they're, commercial, a bit more commercial, but go on a different venue to if there's something a bit more experimental. So we try and match them up with just where we think the fit is best. Mm. And then, you know, size is definitely a part of that. You know, we have spaces from, you know, about 15 to, you know, our biggest sort of standard venues, about 300. And we have sort of everything in between. So, you know, definitely, um, you know, something like a 30-seater, you know, is really great, I think, for a lot of artists. It feels great. You can get about 12 people in there and it feels good um but you know it gives you gives you somewhere to go as well
3: yeah yeah and and what do you know what the average ticket price is for show? do you have like a standard you know everything in the comedy section is this or everything in the drama section is this how does how does pricing work or or does the artist just work it out for themselves
4: yeah we don't have any um standard ticket pricing so it's the artist is empowered to do whatever they like okay. um our standard ticket price is um just over 20 australian dollars which is roughly 10 pounds okay um so pretty cheap and kind of because of that we encourage people you know a third of the festival is is free a lot of visual artwork a lot of kind of public art so a lot of our music is is free you know gigs and people just you know buy alcohol and that's how you know the bar the venue makes their money we really encourage people to you know do what they want to do and, and kind of see where it lands and, and we encourage our audiences to go and see something for free and go and buy a ticket to someone that they might have heard of but only on condition they buy a ticket to something completely new and over the course of the night you've only spent, you know, $40, which is, say, 20 quid, and you've seen four shows and, you know, learnt something new about yourself. That's
3: pretty really, that's really interesting. So, so, so exchange rate-wise, uh, $20 is about £10. Yeah, and at the moment. Is, yeah, yeah. Uh, at the time of recording uh, yeah. uh, you could, you could change used to be that much way. better
4: and it'll probably get much worse if it continues on this, on this yeah. route. much better for me
3: yeah 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 but I'm, I'm just wondering in terms of outside of fringe time for ticketed shows is that average? like what kind because if over here it's a minefield trying to like work out your, your pricing especially when you're doing it for yourself to do that and factor in you know sort of conversion costs and, and all that kind of stuff uh, without even knowing what the rough costs are outside of fringe time I mean, is, is what's? I don't want to get too econo, eco, uh, too much into the economy of Australia, but is that like what people would expect when they see if they see, so? If, for example, if I saw a show for twenty quid over here, obviously it's not as a tenner, but if I saw it for twenty quid, that would imply a certain level of comedian. Is it like twenty bucks is just? not change but it's like a disposable income that would make sense for them if they were doing a fest- if they were doing a run of shows to go and see at a festival
4: yeah i suppose 20 dollars. so yeah about 10 quid would be i mean it's considered cheap okay you know so i guess you know a, a leading comedian you could easily pay double that okay. easily pay you know yeah 40 40 dollars you know 20 20 pounds so yeah prices during fringe tend to be less um but then I guess your venue costs are often less because you're sharing a venue mm. so there's sort of pros and cons of it and obviously there's kind of audiences and and various kind of marketing opportunities that, that come with being as part of a festival but um you know it's considered cheap yeah mm.
3: um, and what are the costs uh for a, i mean obviously that'll fluctuate and this is today if that makes sense but what are the costs for a performer to other than flights and things like that to to register with you to to do a show like, what are the kind of processes to get... So, say say I've registered with the Indie Guide, the yeah. Indie... The indie Programme. Uh, indie Programme, yeah. program, sorry. Yeah. Uh, after that point, I come to you and I have to be in the programme, or you don't have to be in the programme, or you sign up to an app. What's, what's the process there?
4: Sure. So... So any artist can be part of the independent program. They come to us. They pay. The, what they pay varies a little bit depending on how many performances and whether it's free oh, and okay. if they have a small capacity. And we're sort of quite generous in a lot of ways. Okay. But um, assuming they're doing a full run in a normal venue of a you know full season, it's just under 400 Australian dollars, about 200 quid. That essentially gets you yeah included in the guide and on the website and in the program and access to our team. We have an artist services team who kind of can help you every step of the way. And then... Uh, on top of that, you pay venue higher, if you know depending on your venue, and there's a, a ticketing, a small ticketing charge that um, comes out of every ticket that's sold as well. So, but you know, roughly, more or less, once you've paid your money, you know, you're then kind of free to do what what you want to do.
3: Okay. And and your venue services do they help people get to Australia? I know it sounds weird, but uh, if you've never booked a flight there, I mean, you were telling me uh, just before we started. Do you say you've got like two stopovers on your way back, or, or you know like it's not a direct flight necessarily? No, and all,
4: yeah, no, no flight in the world that can fly twenty four hours.
3: No, 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 and also it's it's a uh, it's a long time to be travelling, and also it's an expensive, you know, sort of route over it there. Is. So do do you, do you? A lot of like festivals over here, for example, have uh, local businesses they work with, so you can get a cheap hotel, for example, if you're a performer. Do you have any sort of? artist services that kind of help with that
4: yeah we do we have a whole a whole team that basically there to help every step of the way our added services team so um yeah, they can kind of help you know provide we do have a hotel sponsor who offers a kind of cut rate although for a lot of artists it's still probably more than they want to pay um okay. you know they tend to just do airbnb or or something super super cheap you know hostel mm. it's often kind of what they choose to do um but yeah our artist services team will help you know kind of Every, every bit there's some visa things that have to be sorted out that mm. um, our team can, can help with as well
3: I was talking to uh, I've forgotten their name from the, from the Vancouver Fringe and they have a, they have a really interesting model where um, if, you, if you put up an artist you get like a pass to go to a lot of the shows for free is, do you have anything like that there or we don't it... but that's a great idea yeah I, I just thought it was a really interesting model for, for you know especially for someone if they're going all the way yeah. there you get free accommodation they get free tickets it kind of that's great yeah yeah no we don't have that system but I might steal that <laughs> well you had it here first <laughs> uh, now there's no pressure on him to do it but there definitely <laughs> is um, so, so you have what are your so you have several sponsors then? Because I know Bank of America is the main one, isn't it? Or bank of Australia, Bank of Australia, sorry, yep. yeah. No, sorry, I'm thinking yep. of America.
4: America is no use to me. <laughs> um, yeah, Bank Australia is our principal partner. Okay, they are um, amazing. They're okay, an, they're an ethical bank. Okay, so um, every account holder is a part owner, part shareholder in the bank. Really? So all of their profits are. Um, either returned back to the members, to the account holders, um, and also a proportion of that is distributed to the community. Um, So they do things like if you buy a new home, um, get a home loan, they will plant a certain number of trees to offset the carbon of the purchase of the home. So they're really amazing and they're a great kind of ethical fit for us, I guess, and they give us, you know, a really substantial... um, amount of money that you know helps us put on the festival and and also um, you know it's not an act of charity for them I mean it, it's also a way that they can help I guess spread the word about what they do and and talk to our audiences and we've both done quite a lot of market research and found there's a really great overlap between our target audiences and you know it's just a really very happy marriage. Um, mm. you know we've been together three loving years and we've just signed on for another three years so oh, um you know we're it's a really really great amazing partnership
3: has it changed like have they have they adjusted it at all for the next three years or is there
4: yeah it's all going in the right direction which okay. is which is how we want it
3: okay cool and and what what does the sponsorship deal mean for performance is it like uh do they like sponsoring the arts do they like helping out with that or or do they offer you know something like cheaper exchange rates, for example, on money or anything like that that helps out? Uh,
4: It essentially... The sponsorship essentially, you know, helps the festival, which in turn helps the artist by helping us keep registration fees down. They do this amazing thing where they allow their customers to get discounted tickets, but they pay the discount. So the artist still gets the full price of the ticket, but the audience member gets a discount ticket and the bank makes up makes up the difference. So they do things like that which are really amazing. So it's kind of everyone everyone
3: wins. That's that's incredible. Yeah. How, what's so again is that just cuz they want people to sign up to accounts and sort of put money in so it's it's again not uh, completely altruistic on their part, but it's uh, it's a sort of yeah, that's so it's, yeah, it's look, amazing.
4: It's, a, it's a, yeah, it's amazing. I mean it's it's a marketing tool for them essentially, yeah. you know. Um uh, you know they believe in what we do, but you know also of course they they want to build their brand and yeah. and want people to know that they are doing amazing work which they are, and so you know they we tried to think together about clever ways we could help spread the message and that was sort of one idea that we had and and uh they said yes,
3: cool, and do you have awards over there, yes? What is the structure for those, and how does that work? So we have an,
4: we have lots of awards, um, <laughs> and they all work in sort of slightly different ways. So we haven't we have art form based awards. Mm-hmm. So um, we have a very actually quite a rigorous system of judging by kind of artistic peers. So uh, we will ultimately kind of award in a single. Award for the the best work in each art form across the whole festival. We then have a number of professional development awards that are mostly targeted at young and emerging artists, and they tend to have a partner involved. So there are many.
2: Hey everyone, I've been on the go recently: Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle if you live in a big game town you can airbnb your place for fans to stay in your home might be worth more than you think find out how much at airbnb.com slash post
1: introducing wonder Suite from bluehost.com website creation is hard
4: Tourships. There's you know space to develop work. There's all sorts of kind of you know awards that are provided across kind of particular cultural groups that so we have an, an award for um multi for the best kind of multicultural artist or the best indigenous art, artist or you know yeah a lot of emerging you know new experimental work or kind of development awards. Then we have touring awards. So um, we partner with we have kind of reciprocal touring awards with the moment. Adelaide Fringe, Perth Fringe, New Zealand Fringe, the Brisbane Powerhouse, PACT, which is a centre in Sydney, and we essentially, yeah, they come and they choose a work that they like and they guarantee to pick it up for a tour, so, you know, we, and we do the same kind of, we go to their venues and their festivals and, and bring something back, so we all kind of know that we're, um, a certain amount of work will tour at the end of the festival as well.
3: So you're, you're talking about a tour of Australia? That's right, yeah, or New Zealand. Or New Zealand, okay. Uh, Which is a whole different country. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I was going to ask if it's... uh, (laughs) I was going to ask if it was um, uh, like a tour, as in next year they go around the other festivals or whether it's a tour of, you know, sort of uh, indie uh, theatres or how that sort of operates, yeah.
4: Yeah, yeah, so there's sort of lots of different things. We do do some kind of regional touring. Mm -hmm. um, It's in in regional Australia into theatre venues. um, But mostly... Yeah, we set up these tours into other festivals across the country and New Zealand. Mm.
3: Okay. And outside of the fringe, what is the comedy scene like? Like, so, so what, what would you... And also, how what's your relationship like with that? So the sort of circuit of clubs or, or acts that are doing shows?
4: It's a good question. We tend to... Uh, we have, a, I guess, a, a more distant relationship than the Melbourne Comedy Festival does because yeah. we're across every art form. So you know, comedy and comedy tends to come to a head in in kind of April, and then again for us in September. You know, there are certainly venues that operate year round, but you know, there's no doubt that it is really at those kind of two points of the year that kind of um, yeah, the the real comedy work comes up. So you know, we do a lot of scouting in April, which is during the comedy festival, Melbourne Comedy Festival. That's when we're really out seeing who's hot and who's interesting and and who's up and coming.
0: Hmm.
3: and where, where else do you, do you also scout well brighton a bit and edinburgh i assume or
4: yeah we we actually find it quite hard to get to edinburgh because it's literally like two weeks before our festival opens which yeah, is imagine. the busiest time to fly to the other side of the world yeah so <laughs> um you know yeah we tend to go i mean adelaide you know adelaide perth as i say it was just in brighton mm. new zealand yeah venues right across town
3: yeah, to give you an intro to the Leicester people thinking about it because they're in February, so that could work perfectly. That would be great. Yeah, yeah. So in terms of uh, beyond social media to promote a show, what are your relationships like with like local press and radio stations and TV stations and all that kind of stuff? Yeah. So
4: we have really great relationships with radio in particular. Um, okay. We have a really amazing publicist. There's a, a two radio stations actually that kind of partnered with us and have done for years and years. One is called Triple R. It's the kind... I don't know what the equivalent would be here. It's the kind of independent media. And, you know, they play a lot of indie bands and, you know, they really support the arts and they're amazing. And then Joy, which is the um, queer radio station. Um, And both of them kind of are really amazing at at supporting our festival. Mm -hmm. You know, we have a great publicist who does really amazing work in terms of press across town. There's only... Uh, Two main papers in Melbourne uh, and both of them are kind of, you know, printed papers that are getting smaller and smaller and smaller, which I think is a common story all around the world as kind of print media kind of dies. So there's no doubt that that getting space in those two publications is getting more and more difficult. There's The Australian, which is a national publication, which tend to focus only on national issues. And then we have uh, The Guardian is online only in Australia and sources a lot of its content from over here. So, you know, press can be can be hard.
3: So the two newspapers don't have an online presence. They do. Oh, okay. They do, but
4: yeah, they they they're still sort of I don't know if it's the same over here, but it's interesting just watching both of them really struggle with particularly there's one newspaper that In some ways, its readership aligns most closely with our market. I I don't know what the equivalent would be here. Slightly left-leaning, but probably not as far left as The Guardian. Um, I don't know what your equivalent would be here. But, you know, they're just seeing their audience kind of be, you know, kind of whittled away, and they're struggling to kind of work out that move, I think, to online. And I think it's a really common story all around the world.
3: Yeah, uh, most. I I think it's not dead, but it's just moving online which I I suppose that means the actual antiquatedness, like the physical things dead. But the problem is that there's still sort of a dying generation that like it. And I don't know. I I don't know. I think it's just going to end at some point.
4: Well, it definitely will end. But it's interesting also, you know, with the online media, um, we curate it much more. You don't do that. Just flicking through the paper And seeing what you mm. find People tend to really Follow links They mm. You know they. It's harder to be exposed To stories in a sense People sort of Flick through on their phone And click on something or not Whereas I think In a printed paper People tended to um, Waft through the paper And see what they found Whereas now You know Yeah People are time poor mm. They're You know Used to um, Being very very clear In what they want And, and they curate Their social media feeds mm. To get the kind of story They want to see So you know There can be a hundred reviews of shows on, on an, in an online paper but unless you kind of click on the right button they won't come up whereas if you um flicking through the paper and there's a whole page of reviews you tend to at least understand that the festival's on mm. you know so I, I think there's some challenges associated with it but look there's lots of pros that come with that as well and yeah. you know much more targeted media and all the things that i just said are negative or positives as yeah, well yeah, as yeah. people get exactly what they want and they mm. they know what they're looking for and and all of that
3: and in terms of radio, because you've got a good relationship there, is that is that because your audience or a lot of the people listen to radio more over in Australia, or is that you know just the connection that you've built? So you know, just because that's the one you've been working on the most. What's the?
4: Yeah, it's a good question. I feel like radio. Melbourne French just has a kind of great relationship with radio and has for a long time. Okay. I'm not a huge radio listener, so right. sometimes I am, I'm shocked. I do a lot of radio kind of interviews and, and stuff, you know, when I'm flogging the festival, mm-hmm. I guess. And I'm always shocked at how many people tell me they've heard me on the radio. So it definitely works. People definitely listen to it. Yeah. But I'm never sure why. <laughs>
3: I, I met someone at a gig recently who overheard me and came running over and went, I know your voice. And I was like, okay, this is a bit weird. And they went, no, I listened to this. And I was like, oh, that's nice. And they Creepy went, yeah. But nice. Yeah, but I was like, oh, I just didn't know what you look like. And I was like, thanks. <laughs> that's nice, I suppose. But it was just a bit surreal where, because I don't have me on this anywhere at the moment anyway. It's, it's sort of... um Weird that they know this voice, but they don't know who, what I look like, and I suppose it's the same you know like is it they they sort of don't are you sort of behind the scenes not on purpose, but like because your vo- your voice is only going out there on radio, so do you sort of like to stay i don't want to say below the radar, but just not you so you can walk along and not get stopped like a performer might, for example, or is it yeah i'm I'm not quite
4: beyonce, so okay, okay. you know I can definitely walk down the street. I think House is a different is sadly. I think House is a different is a different sort of festival to a lot of festivals that have I guess a lead curator who's who's very well known especially if you look at um some of the international festivals here they've got you know kind of a big a big celebrity but you know we're we're really driven by the artists that's our real focus. That all the artists would know who I am and and what I do but I don't know if the broader community sort of would
3: yeah Yeah. And flyering is quite a big thing in most festivals over here. Is it a thing over there?
4: Flyering is not a thing in Melbourne. Um, It's not a thing at all. In fact, it is banned. Really? Um, It is a local bylaw. You actually can't do it. And we have quite a strong environmental policy, both in terms of the festival itself, but also the city of Melbourne who fund us um the city of melbourne have yeah very strong environmental frameworks that we have to adhere to so in fact you know we kind of think it's bad for the environment most of them go in the bin um the way that the printing structures work is it costs you the same amount of money to print 10,000 as it does to cost as it does to print 50,000 so everyone prints 50,000 but they only needed 10 mm. um you know <laughs> none of that actually you know helps anyone so yeah we really um discourage people certainly standing on the street handing out flyers is is not something you're you're really allowed to do the melbourne comedy festival get a get a special permit and you can do it in a very particular zone um that everyone avoids <laughs> that everyone avoids exactly <laughs> yeah but we yeah we we sort of discourage it at melbourne fringe we we think it's bad for the environment
3: I agree. <laughs> no, I I, uh, I avoid flying at, mo- at every festival that I can, just because I a I don't like doing it, and b uh, well, I mean that's not true actually. I like talking to people, but I don't like giving them something at the end of it because it feels then like I've been sales pitching, which I suppose I have been, but I prefer not doing that. And... Just
4: your soul. Like think about your soul. All of that handing out of flyers to people that are not interested is soul destroying.
3: Well, yes, know, but you, you don't know if they're not interested until you've spoken to them. Especially in someone like Edinburgh where I've found, you know, sometimes I've spoken to people who are flyering and they've gone, like, I've seen them not flyer someone and I've gone, why didn't you give them one or whatever? And they're like, oh, they wouldn't enjoy it. And you think, how how do you know from looking at that person? I mean, you might yeah. for some people, but how do you know from looking that they aren't going to like your style of comedy? It seems a bit presumptuous on their part or Nothing maybe like a snap
4: judgment i think
3: yeah yeah and maybe maybe they're more worried that they will like it and it'll be like oh i'm in to kind that so it could be even something within them that's quite negative and dark but i don't yeah. like yeah i don't like flying, so that's that's good to hear in a weird way so do you, i mean is posters the same thing where you can't really put them up in venues or is that
4: posters can go up so posters there's kind of a mafia of show posters in australia okay where Essentially, companies... I don't know if it's the same over here... But, like, companies buy walls in cafes and things. And then the only way you can get a poster on a wall... Is to pay the person who's rented the wall. Yes. And they all hate each other. Like, the different companies that do it. So, if you go with one never darken the door of the of the other
3: yeah no in, in edinburgh they they you put them up in all the free venues and stuff that you want but they the the walls of most of the buildings you have to pay an extortion amount to have a big one of your face on it yeah and i don't know how much that helps because i think after a certain period of time they all blend in and you don't sort of notice them anymore
4: well it is that thing ultimately where um you know an image is what sells a show mm. when there's that many to choose from you know just another face that you don't know isn't going to do enough probably you know it really needs to be something incredibly clever that can really stand out that makes people stop and look mm-hmm. and i think if you can come up with an image that you know really is quite extraordinary then a poster campaign can be really effective in terms of mm-hmm. building awareness i don't know that it will translate into ticket sales but step one of ticket sales is building awareness so i think it does help people know that a show is on mm-hmm. there's an another stage of marketing that is about convincing people to buy a ticket
3: are stunts a thing over there because in edinburgh that's quite a big thing where they even have awards for the most intelligent or most crafty stunt so do you allow that or do you encourage that what's your uh
4: we neither discourage stunts or encourage stunts but we don't really have a huge number of them i must say we tend to have so we run a central club and a lot of acts will ask to perform at the fringe club and it's where a lot of artists and audiences will kind of come to find out you know what's what's hard and what's interesting and just have a great night so yeah a lot of artists will, will do something wacky there but it's not a stunt as
3: such okay and you mentioned before uh well, we've talked a little bit about ticket sales how far in advance do melbourne audiences book shows because i've done i've done shows where i've i've been called by the promoter like two days before and they've said only four tickets have been sold do you want to pull it kind of thing and i've gone no no we'll do it and then on the day you get you know, just a surge of people turning up or, or maybe not surge, but, you know, you get people turning up and you've and you, and you you've worried yourself for no reason, if that makes sense. Whereas, you know, for festivals, I have friends of mine who are already booking their Edinburgh shows. You'd like tickets for that now. So I'm wondering, like, how organised are your audience, I suppose, is the question.
4: Our audiences at Melbourne Fringe are pretty disorganised. Okay. Um...
3: Good to
4: (laughs) Yeah, we we don't get a huge number of pre sales before the festival begins. But we do get a lot of booking. So artists don't or audiences don't necessarily just buy on the night. Like they do book tickets, but they wait and hear what's hot. Mm. So we launch our festival 5 weeks before we open and you know we would only sell i don't know the numbers 20% of tickets in that time you know m- most of the tickets really are sold once the festival begins and once people really start to hear what's hot and what's interesting it would only be a really big name artist or a big name comedian that would sell out in advance um most really happen during the
3: festival would it would it make sense then to I mean, uh, I know you're probably going to say no, just for a, from no. a logistic point of view. But um, but wouldn't it make sense then for some performers to start slightly later on for different genres of of performance? Because if the tickets don't start selling until they know, would you? And it costs you more to do a certain number of more shows. I'm just wondering whether it would make sense to do a shorter run later in the festival when people are booking stuff than...
4: it's kind of pros and cons to it. I mean, we sell lots of tickets at the start. It's not that we only sell tickets at the end. We encourage people to do a full run, actually, because it's just that audiences don't necessarily make up their mind. I think if you do a short run at the end, you can just get lost um, because by that stage, audiences have already decided what the hot show of Fringe is. Mm -hmm. You know, Whereas at the start of the festival people are much more willing to experiment. So I think it depends who you are. You know, if you're a big name, you can probably do whatever you like. You can book the start (laughs) at the end, in the middle, the whole run and you'll sell. I think if you're, for want of a better term, a nobody um, (laughs) and, you know, really kind of, you know, working out who you are for the first time and, and trying to, I guess, build new audiences, you know, I really encourage people to do a full two week run or two and a half week run and, you know, let that discovery happen. And probably your sales for the first bit might be a little bit slow, but they will, they will pick up. And if you don't, Start by doing a full run, then they can often just never, you know, not pick up. I think that giving people a chance to come back and word of mouth to spread, it's a really common strategy. But, you know, I really encourage people to do the full run.
3: Yeah. And and your participant services, what do you think are the most underused features or facilities that they offer that maybe performers just don't know about or just haven't had, you know, just haven't had a appropriate or what they think is an appropriate time to ask that you offer?
4: Mm, good question. I feel like our artist services get absolutely slammed prior to <laughs> registration. Okay. So
3: When's registration? How far ahead do you have to register? Uh, we
4: we closed registrations uh, at the end of May, and the festival starts uh, in the middle of September. So prior to that, when people are trying to find... Venues, I think, in particular, they're trying to get themselves sorted there. When you register, I think it's the same over here. You know, By the day you register, you need to know your venue, your times, your Mm. dates, your ticket prices, your 60-word marketing blurb. You've got to have an image. So we get a lot of questions from people at that point when they're like, Oh, my image needs to be 60 pixels and mine's only 45. What do I do? Whatever. Mm. I don't know if that's how many pixels it Mm. should be or even what a pixel is, but someone in my (laughs) office does. And... I guess I would encourage people that, you know, once you've registered, that's just the start, you know. Yeah, a lot less will, will during the, the course, call our marketing team and say, um, what what tips have you got for me? Or, you know, I'm on the way to working on this, what do you think? Or my venue gave me this contract and could you have a look at it for me? Or, you know, our team's just kind of there to help.
3: Yeah, and, and I can imagine when it comes to promoting a show as well, are they good for... Because if, again, if, if, if the... Audiences are not as organised as maybe they are in other places, let's say that. If you started promoting as soon as you've been confirmed, that's sort of a five-month gap when I'm presuming that's not going to have a very big impact on, even though the tickets will be available, I'm presuming most people aren't doing this. So, I mean, how far ahead do you plan media stuff if you're an artist?
4: So we, we have an embargo on our artists from oh. registration until launch. And that is so that we could launch with a bang And kind right. of hit the media and tickets go on sale And we do everything on the same day So this year we'll launch on the 9th of August So it's five weeks before opening So between registering on the 23rd of May We close registrations And the 9th of August We ask our artists to shut up And then basically on the 9th of August We go live with a massive bang And suddenly here's the program These are the artists Everything's on sale now Go And we do that to try and sort of push it in that Campaign period. Are you penalised then if you do talk about it or you promote it? Or Oh, look, no. I mean, I'm, right. you know, I don't sort of fine people for it. Um, <laughs> you know, but I guess we discourage people to really do that because we just kind of think that nothing tends to be gained by it, really. Um, you know, we sort of think the that moment when artists or when audiences pick up that fringe guide and find out what's in the festival. We just think if that can happen with a bang, it just has a better effect on audiences and on, on sales. You know, a lot of artists come to us and ask if they can launch early. They do that for all sorts of reasons. Mm-hmm. They might be running a, a crowdfunding campaign. They might be part of a season in a venue that has launching a whole season. Um, you know, they might have a particular strategy they're working on where they want to do an early bird ticket or I don't know, something, you know, we give kind of permission for artists to break the embargo for lots of reasons. But, you know, we prefer it when they don't.
3: Yeah, yeah, of course. And in terms of so if a lot of your audience are finding out stuff through uh, the radio and the social media and that kind of stuff, and and obviously the, the print media is getting less because of just everything is, you know, going online, and it's not happening that way. Is there a reason why you still do a printed program? Like, is that because people are, you know, still looking at that, or is it just traditionally you doing it so you carry it on?
4: Yeah, we've talked a lot about whether a printed program remains a useful thing um our market research tells us that it is that audiences still like to thumb a program guide and and see what's on but obviously you know we don't do that alone everything's also on a on a website that works on your phone and and does all of that so you know we find the combination of things works really well
3: okay yeah yeah, yeah. i I just wondered um what's the split of discovery over your website versus program versus have you got an app
4: we don't know okay we just use a um a mobile enabled website cool yep kind of all does the same thing yeah i don't know the answer to that that's probably sitting in some statistics somewhere in terms of you know how they found out about it we in our market research but off the top of my head i, I don't know I, I know we've certainly looked at is it worth us still doing it you know and it is and and also by the time you know we sell ads in the guide too so by the time we sell ads and stuff it, it sort of can make back a lot of its money as well
3: these are the final quickfire questions so they're quick for me you take as long as you want to okay. do okay what is the best show you've ever seen
4: the best show I've ever
3: seen. I keep it vague on purpose so it can be any medium of performance. It doesn't necessarily have to be comedy, although that would be the preference. <laughs> uh,
4: the best show I've ever seen probably is it was a Belgian show. It was a Belgian one on one performance called Smile Off Your Face that has been very memorable for me, where you're in a wheelchair and you are kind of you you, as a participant participant. you're in a wheelchair and you're kind of moved and blindfolded and kind of moved through this kind of whole experience and it certainly made me you know kind of yeah experience kind of work like i never had before in terms of comedy um i'm definitely a massive dr brown fan
3: oh dr brown yeah. yeah Is that wait? Is that Doc Brown the rapper or Doc Brown the clown? Doctor Brown the clown. Oh, yeah, he's yeah. awesome. He's yeah, great. Amazing. Yeah, I did his clowning course a little while ago. Did he? Yeah, he's, he's amazing. amazing. Yeah, yeah. I'd highly recommend it. Just even if you, uh, do you, you do perform much or are you? Not very well. Okay, yeah. Just do it anyway. It's a lot of fun and it's really eye opening. So okay. yeah, it's amazing. Who do you think is the most underrated person in the industry? In fact, I'm, you, I'm gonna I'm gonna narrow it down for you. I'm gonna say the Australian in uh, industry. <laughs> I just need a, I just need a second to think about it. That's okay.
0: Yeah. Um,
4: It's a good question.
3: It's my favourite one. It's great. Yeah.
4: I really love... um, I do love a kind of musical comedian. Okay. And we have a number of them in Australia that poised, I guess, for, you know, some big things, I I think. Yeah, I particularly love a kind of comedy duo. I don't know if they've made it over here. Sammy J and Randy. Um, I've known them both for years. So Sammy J is a kind of skinny, blonde... Man and Randy is a small purple puppet, and they are, you know, kind of filthy and hilarious and clever and witty and political and, yeah, really, really kind of multi-skilled, the dear friend of Randy who kind of, you know, the puppeteer is, he's an extraordinary performer, kind of an amazing puppeteer. And, you know, Sammy's a, a you know great kind of fierce intellect. They're a pretty amazing duo. Awesome.
3: Awesome. What is the biggest mistake you've ever made and how did you overcome it?
4: Biggest mistake I've ever made. I've made so many. <laughs> it's very hard. I took a a job once that I took for the wrong reasons. I think I took it because it was quite powerful they're the kind of jobs that people you know want for lots of reasons but you know you've got a big programming budget you know in a big prestigious venue where everyone's always sucking up to you and it was just a massive mistake you can't take risks in a lot of those environments you know it was full of you know deeply conservative thinking when i'm a kind of fast-moving risk taker And, you know, you kind of, I guess what I learnt at the end of that, you know, was really what are the things that I value and I kind of, in every job or anything I've ever done since, I think a lot about the things that I value and they are, you know, I I value risk taking, I value integrity, you know, I value kind of good fun at the same time as 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 good practice you know i value kind of seemingly making um, impossible things happen uh i value flexibility you know i value uh bravery and i think there's something about being able to identify what it is that you're after in the world that makes you realize who it is you want to associate with and and what kind of organizations are, are the right fit
3: yeah Last year I heard um I got told a a thing that you are you are the average of the five people you hang out with most <laughs> which I think's really true. So That's I think great. I think when you I think when you think of it like that you really select not just what you do but who you're around much more uh, carefully. Absolutely,
4: you know. I think we have to think about inspiration every single day and you know there's just a lot of thought about, you know, kind of going what what do I want to get out of today, mm-hmm. you know? Do I want to kind of, um, what do I want my legacy to be? Do I want my legacy to be that I filled out the most paperwork, you know, most carefully? Or do I want my legacy to be, you know, that I enabled something extraordinary? to happen you know that I built you know a a kind of creative or artistic program that you know has kind of shifted the industry in some way or kind of supported artists to make something that they couldn't have made before or to reach a larger larger audience or you know to kind of push the the boundaries of the art form or Mm -hmm. you know there's there's sort of some big questions I think we need to ask ourselves every day
3: yeah definitely definitely um what is the most interesting thing you do that nobody ever gets to see
4: the most interesting thing that I do That nobody gets to see is probably the commissioning of new artworks so um, they see the end product of that Mm. but they don't see the process that goes behind it so I'm very lucky in a sense that we have a commissioning program for public art you know we commission sculptures or um, public free public performance or um, all sorts of things so There's a kind of deep process where I'm talking to artists and we dream up kind of how we could impact the city. You know, we we talk a lot about what we call cultural democracy, the idea that art is for everyone and that it's really um the right of the citizens of our city to contribute to it and i really think about that when i'm approaching the commissioning of a new artwork by an amazing brilliant artist and so i get to talk to a range of artists about how they want to i guess enable the citizens of our city to discover and rediscover their city in a way they haven't seen it before or kind of look at their architecture in new ways or, you know, kind of transform their civic spaces and of those heaps and heaps of conversations, you know, one project might get up in a festival, but you know, I get to have all these amazing, inspiring, incredible conversations with artists.
3: That sounds really nice. That sounds like a great job. It's a pretty good job. Yeah, yeah, I was gonna say what is the best bit of advice you've ever been given? And it doesn't have to be something you've used, by the way. I always have to make that clear to people.
4: Best bit of advice I've ever been given I think
3: it's always just
4: it's been to make sure that we understand that good work can go together with having a good time. There's a sense sometimes that unless you're being very serious, that um your work isn't of value or isn't yeah, you don't take it seriously. you know, I believe that you can have you know a deep conversation about you know finance or politics or anything while walking around the room clucking like a chicken Mm. you know i think things that make us laugh make us happier people out in the world and you know i really try and and make you know my workplace my personal life you know a place where people want to be around you because they laugh and that can go with a really deep commitment to you know kind of great great practice as well
3: yeah definitely definitely and if you could give one bit of advice to a performer who has never done the Melbourne Fringe before but is looking into it, what would that be?
4: piece of advice I would give to a performer coming to Melbourne Fringe for the first time, obviously would be do it <laughs> um, you know especially if they're over Just here in the uk. Yeah, yeah. come all the way to yeah, Australia. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, I would say be prepared for you know a wild ride with a risky audience. You know, my piece of advice would be: d- don't be boring. Don't don't do <laughs> don't I tell it like it is. Don't do the the standard conservative thing. You know, think about a work that can happen in a in a site specific venue mm. or um, that you know is really going to push people's buttons or is really at the edges of you know what we can even imagine. Mm. I think you know that certainly in Melbourne. The work that really blows people's minds is, is what we want to see. It's what we get excited about. It's what our audiences are up for. So I really encourage people to just think outside that box.
3: Awesome. Well, thank you very much for coming on. My pleasure. That was Simon. I hope you enjoyed that. He had such a passion for the shows and for the fringe that really came through to me in the edit and also in real life. And I just loved how aware he was about the festival's place, both on the Australian circuit and the global one as well, learning why they don't have a free fringe and the expansion and in social media, really opened my eyes to the differences in culture from the other side of the world and has given me a little push to make an effort to go over there and perform shows to the Australians when I can afford it. If you got some value out of it and you think you might know someone else who could get some value out of it, please do share the link with them. It really helps with the show and the number of downloads and also just expands the audience to new people. Also, if you have a minute, please do give it an honest review in iTunes. That really helps out with the chart positions, or so I've been told, and it also just looks better for new people who land on it randomly and finally if you want to donate you can do so through my website either as a one-off donation via paypal or as an ongoing donation per podcast via patreon from one dollar or 80p an episode all the details and links are on the website in the show notes which can be found at simoncane.co.uk but for now thank you very much for listening thank you very much for subscribing thank you very much for donating if you do and i will see you all in about 10 days time
1: bye